0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls. Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Gary Parker. Today, we have episode 309 for January 30th, 2023. First of all, the annual listener survey is almost over. Last call for feedback. I've got some great feedback already. Thank you so much for people who've already responded. I've got some interesting requests for guests. The most popular one by far is a guy named Michael Bazell. He runs another podcast called OSENT something or other and he writes books and other stuff too he's he's a a much more extreme kind of a privacy guy than I am but he would definitely be an interesting person to have on the show also Naomi Brockwell was mentioned a few times I'd love to have her on the show as well so uh, I will look into it I'll, I will see if I can't get those folks on the show thank you for those suggestions some people mentioned I should have uh, Henry from tech Lore on or Nate from the new oil I have already had them on the show if you haven't found those episodes search for them you can find them those were great a lot of fun But uh, I would love to have them back on the show, so we will uh, try to get them back sometime as well. So stay tuned. But the survey is going to be shutting down here uh, midweek this week at the end of the month, basically. So this is your last call. If you already like what I'm doing, that's good to know. Uh, That way I don't just listen to the people who want me to change stuff. Regardless of how you feel, it's totally anonymous. I would love to get your feedback. And I this is the one time of year I do it. So now's your opportunity. So that's fdsd.me slash survey 2023. And of course, there's a link in the show notes. couple quick things before I get to the news rundown. If you've got an Apple device, there's lots of updates available with some security stuff in that. So be sure to get your Macs, your iPhones and your iPads updated soon. Similarly, if you are still, for some reason, using Google Chrome as your web browser, uh, you need to update that right away. It should update on its own, but you might want to quit it and restart it or do a check the About box or something and see if there's an available update because there is a vulnerability in Chrome that is being actively exploited, uh, so you definitely want to make sure you've got the latest version of Chrome. All right, so we've got a news show for you today. I'm going to talk about how the FBI has successfully hacked the hackers and shut down a major ransomware group. And then the rest of the news is is pretty much bad. Uh, we're going to talk about some Windows malware, some Android malware, a dangerous malvertising campaign. The terrorist watch list, the so-called no-fly list that was secret, was apparently leaked with over 2 million records exposed. PayPal accounts have been, they say breached. It's really not breached. It's uh, from a cred- credential stuffing attack. I'll explain more about that when we talk about it. T-Mobile has admitted to... Over 37 million customer records being stolen by a quote-unquote bad actor. Twitter's god mode is back, or more more to the point, never actually left. And then I've got a Dear Carrie question for you. Uh, Actually, two different people asked pretty much the same question, so I'm going to kill two birds with one stone today. And then for the tip of the week, I'm finally going to talk about Apple's advanced data protection. And I've got some exciting updates about the book, and I will talk to you about that after we go through the news. So, let's get to it all right first up really the only good news i have for you this week and this is a story from npr and this is about the fbi shutting down a major ransomware group The Department of Justice on Thursday announced the destruction of a Russian-linked Hive ransomware group, that's the name Hive, after a global law enforcement operation that ran for months. The criminal syndicate sold ransomware tools and services to affiliates around the world starting in the summer of 2021 at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. They received more than $100 million in profits from victims who paid to get their data back or prevent it from being leaked. According to the Justice Department, Hive targeted more than 1,500 victims in over 80 countries, from hospitals to Costa Rica's public health agency, crippling businesses and harming critical infrastructure. The FBI says it hacked into Hive's networks in July of 2022, burrowing into its digital infrastructure to spy on the group's operations and gather important intelligence before ultimately dismantling the operation on Wednesday night. This would have been last week. According to FBI director Chris Ray, law enforcement officers were able to provide digital keys to victims who had notified the FBI. This allowed the victims to retrieve their files and return to business without paying a ransom. The Justice Department claims the intervention saved over $130 million in ransom payments, a figure that could have been higher had more victims come forward. Additionally, the FBI and its partners in Europol and German and Dutch law enforcement were able to completely take over Hive's digital infra- infrastructure from its command and control servers to its dark web extortion website where it advertises its victims and dumps stolen data. On Wednesday night, the Site was replaced with a banner from the International Group of Law Enforcement Agencies announcing the seizure. The infiltration and ultimate disruption of the Hive ransomware group is the latest effort by the Department of Justice to fight back against the plague of damaging and costly ransomware attacks in recent years. According to Kimberly Goody, a senior manager at Mandiant Threat Intelligence and Google Cloud, Hive ransomware was found in over 15% of the intrusions her team responded to in 2022, over 50% of them in the United States, and many impacting the healthcare sector. Hive has been destroyed, but ransomware experts said the operators will most likely join other groups or rebuild a common phenomenon in what's becoming a global industry. However, the disruption forces those operators to pause and do costly and time-consuming work to rebuild. So as always, these are always the shortened version of these articles. You can read the full uh, articles by clicking the links in the show notes. But a couple takeaways from this. First of all, if you are attacked with ransomware, report it. This article made it quite clear that had you reported it to the FBI in this case, if you were a, a healthcare agency or a hospital or you know probably one of the larger victims, if you had reported it, they would have been able to help you get your stuff back without paying. But more so, it also helps us keep statistics on these sort of things, and you might be able to get help. Even if it's not with the FBI, uh, you, I think you might try your local state's attorney general. Or of course, if you're outside of the United States, find your local authority. Start with whatever makes the most sense for you and they may refer you to others, but report these crimes as they happen so that we can keep track of them. And so that hopefully, you know, they might be able to give you some resources to help. Also, it's worth knowing that sometimes ransomware is reversible without paying. When it comes down to it, this is all software, and as I like to say, all software has bugs, and sometimes these guys screw up. Sometimes there are ways around paying the ransom and still getting your your money back. Uh, there's a couple sites you should look at. These are both on my resources page on my website. Uh, one's nomoransom.org, and the other one is id-ransomware.malwarehunterteam.com. That last one doesn't really roll off the tongue, unfortunately. But again, if you're a victim to this, just head over to my resources page and scroll around for ransomware and you will find those links. Uh, These guys work to help identify these ransomware strains and help people try to get their data back without paying. And then finally, obviously, back up your data. If you've got data that if it leaks would be bad and that alone would be ransomable uh, you know, it won't help in that case. But uh, at the very least, if you've got good backups, rolling backups of all your data, uh, when this happens, you could at least get back to up and up and running without having to pay the ransom. All right, next up, this is from Tom's guide. And this is about some Windows malware going around, uh, stealing passwords and other data. Windows PCs are currently under attack from a new Python-based malware that has previously gone undetected, which can steal passwords and other sensitive data from victims' browsers. According to the the threat analytics company Secure Securonix, this malware is a remote access trojan, or a rat, dubbed Pyration, and that's spelled P-Y pound sign R-A-T-I-O-N, so I'm, I'm going to call it Pyration. It's currently being spread through a phishing campaign that uses password-protected zip files attached to emails that include two .lnk files disguised as images depicting the front and back of a driver's license. When launched, the two shortcuts contained in the zip files execute malicious code in the background while unsuspecting users are looking at the driver's license images. This code is used to contact the attacker-controlled CNC server or a command and control server and download two text files that are then renamed to .bat files, which are batch files in Windows, But however, the malware also creates Cortana and Cortana setup directories in a victim's temporary folder. Other executable files are then downloaded, unpacked, and run from this location. Pyration is able to establish persistence, or a foothold, on an infected Windows PC by adding a batch file called cortanaassist.bat in a user's startup directory. This makes the malware harder to detect as infected users might think it's a legitimate Windows system file instead of a virus hiding in plain sight. Although Microsoft's virtual assistant isn't nearly as popular as it once was, it's still included in both Windows 10 and Windows 11. However, in the latest version of Windows, Cortana is no longer pinned to the taskbar. Fortunately, you can also uninstall Cortana if you think Microsoft's virtual assistant is too invasive. That's interesting. I know you could do that. There's a link in the show notes to how to uninstall it if you want to do that. The latest version of Pyration contains a number of features to make it easier for hackers to steal data from infected PCs. For instance, the malware can transfer files to and from the CNC server, record keystrokes, detect an infected machine is running antivirus software, steal clipboard data, and extract both passwords and cookies from web browsers. All of this stolen data can then be used to commit fraud or even identity theft. Besides stealing data from Google Chrome, Brave, Opera, and Microsoft Edge, Pyration can also steal inf- information from the best cryptocurrency wallets as well as user and system data from an infected PC. To stay safe from this and other malware, you should always avoid opening email attachments from unknown senders. While the files inside might seem innocent at first, there could be something malicious going on in the background, as is the case here. So actually, they went on to say you should use uh, uh, antivirus software and some of the things that I don't necessarily agree with. I'm... So as you may know, I have a somewhat controversial stance on this stuff. And I think that really that the only antivirus software that you should be using is Microsoft Defender. It comes with Microsoft Windows. It's quite good. It doesn't cost you any extra money. Uh, I personally don't think it's worth spending money on, you know, Norton and McAfee and some of these other ones. I don't even I don't even know what the current ones are. <laughs> there, there's a lot of them. And then we've talked about this before. Your best bet is just to have really good internet hygiene, which I talk about on this show all the time. Uh, and on windows use defender and on mac i don't know. i don't i don't use any antivirus stuff on my macs i just don't macs have a lot of built-in anti-malware stuff it's not you know really a, what i would call a full-fledged antivirus but it's it still does a pretty good job and again the best bet is just to not don't click links that you know you shouldn't click don't open attachments you weren't expecting or that might be shady but this particular malware also seems to be taking passwords and things from browser-based password managers, I even hesitate to call them a password manager. Uh, But most browsers today will offer to remember, you know, passwords and login information for you, as well as credit card information and addresses and things like that to help you fill out forms. Yeah, that's very convenient, but they're they're just not nearly as good as a dedicated password manager. So I would not use the browser's built-in remembering functions. Instead, I would turn those off and use a dedicated password manager and install the corresponding browser plugin for that password manager. So the, you know, the plugin will then fill in all those forms for you. But the built in quote unquote password manager in most browsers is just not that secure. All right, next up, this is from TechSpot, and it's about a new uh, malware for Android devices called Hook. Security researchers at ThreatFabric have uncovered an Android banking app malware called Hook. The program allows hackers to take over a target's phone remotely. Bad actors can use it to steal data, exfiltrate personally identifiable information, or PII, make financial transactions, and more. A threat actor going by Duke Eugene sells the malware on the dark web and claims that he wrote the code, quote-unquote, from scratch. However, Threat Fabric's code analysis shows it to be a fork of Ermac, E-R-M-A-C, one of the most detected malware families in the wild. While most of the code is from the well-known banking trojan, the rest is bits and parts of other programs showing there is no honor among thieves. In other words, this person who claims they wrote this from scratch really pieced together a bunch of stuff from other things that he stole and put it together and he's calling it his own. What sets Hook apart from Ermac is its ability to use Virtual Network Computing, or VNC, to hijack an Android phone. The software can send virtual swipe gestures, scroll, take screenshots, and simulate key presses including a long press. The researchers say that Hook also acts as a file manager. Hackers can use it to view all files on the phone or download any that they find valuable. It can also view or download any images on the phone. Hook doesn't even need to use shell commands to perform the file exfiltration. Instead, it uses existing Android APIs to steal the files. This capability, coupled with its access to real-time GPS tracking information, makes it a dual-duty banking Trojan spyware suite. The malware's victims' banking apps are widespread and extensive, with the U.S., Australia, Canada, the U.K., and France all reported in the top 10 of targets. The researchers posted a complete list of targeted apps and the package names associated with Hook at the end of their blog post, and there's a link uh, in that sentence, that you can click on if you want that list. The article also has all the technical nuts and bolts for those interested. As a mitigation, always practice safe security hygiene. Avoid downloading software outside of the Google Play Store or other trusted sources. Since Hook relies on accessibility services permissions to function, be wary of apps asking for that type of access. Yeah, so a couple things I might add to that. First of all, I totally agree. You should really only ever use the Google Play Store when you're finding apps uh, for Android, unless you really, really know what you're doing. Just because they're in there doesn't mean they're safe, but it does mean that, you know, Google has at least gone through a lot of automated testing for malware and they can pull apps when they've been found to be bad. Of all the stores, it should be the safest store. As this article says, you should always be very careful of what permissions that you give to any of your apps that you install. A lot of apps will ask for a lot of crap they don't need. When they're asking for accessibility services permissions, it's a funny name, but what that really means is it kind of gives them the ability to control your phone, you know, like clicking on things and scrolling on things and opening up things. Those are all things that are kind of accessibility features that allow them basically to remote control your phone. So that's a very, very powerful permission that you're giving to an app. So you can go back, and you probably should, uh, review the permissions that you have given to other apps. Uh, In most cases now with a modern Android phone, you can revoke them after the fact. And while you're there, remove any apps that you are no longer using. Every app you have on that phone is just another chink in the arm or another thing that could be exploited. So if you don't absolutely need an app, if it's something that's been sitting around for a long time, especially if it's something that's no longer getting any updates, I would delete it from your phone. The next article is from Tech Radar, and it's about a dangerous malvertising campaign. Cybersecurity researchers from HP Wolf Security have warned of several active campaigns looking to deliver different types of malware to unsuspecting victims via typo-squatting domains and malvertising. And a typo-squatted domain is a is a web domain like Amazon.com that looks like Amazon.com, but it's not. It's something very similar but different. So the classic one is like Twitter.com, except instead of T W I T T E R, it's T V V I T T E R. I don't know if that's a real one or not, or if ever it was real, but it's a common example that is used for typo squatting. It's something that looks like it, but it's not. The other typo squatting would be something that's actually a typo, like something that. A word that people commonly misspell or commonly mistype, you know, maybe two letters are reversed or it contains a word that people often spell incorrectly or maybe a nickname for a site that's commonly used and they've gotten that domain. So you think you're on a valid site when you're really not. All right, back to the article. The team explained in a blog post how they found threat actors creating multiple typo-squatted websites impersonating popular software such as Audacity, Blender, or GIMP. That's GIMP, that's kind of a open source version of Photoshop. The scammers also paid different ad networks to run ads promoting these fake websites. That way, when people search for these programs, search engines might end up serving malicious versions of the website right next to legitimate ones. If a user isn't careful and does not double-check the URL of the website they're visiting, they might end up in the wrong place. If victims do end up in the wrong place, they'll hardly notice the difference. The websites are designed to look almost identical to the authentic ones, down to the tiniest detail. In Audacity's example, the site hosts a malicious .exe file masquerading as the program's installer. It's named Audacity-win-x64.exe and is more than 300 megabytes in size. By being this big, the attackers try to avoid raising suspicion. Malware is usually measured in kilobytes, not megabytes, but also try to avoid antivirus programs. According to the researchers, some antivirus programs' automatic scanning features don't scan extremely large files. That seemed dumb. The files are hosted on the 4sync.com cloud storage service. The researchers said adding that all the fake installers in this campaign have been hosted there, hinting that a good defense mechanism might be to block access to this service entirely. And by the way, that's the number four, SYNC.com. So a few takeaways from, from this. First, be very, very careful when downloading software. Always go to the source. There used to be some kind of convenient aggregator sites like Download.net, MacUpdate, Cows. I don't even know if these are still around anymore, but there's these are places that used to be for drivers in a lot of cases too for Windows when drivers were such a popular thing. So it's a one-stop shop. You go there and download stuff. Do not go to those sites anymore. Most of them are laced with crapware and some of them with malware. So always go to the source. Type it in by hand. If you know that you want to get you know Audacity, then go to their web go to their website directly. If you're not sure what the exact source is, do a little research on that before you do it. Make sure you find out who the, the real owner of that software is and go to their website directly to download the software. Don't trust other links. Don't get it from affiliate sites. Certainly don't get it from these aggregator sites. When you're doing searches, do not trust the top search results. Look at them very carefully, especially if you're using something like Google search. A lot of those top search results are ads and they're not well labeled. Of course, if you're using an ad blocker like uBlock Origin, hopefully a lot of that stuff will be blocked in the top and there will be no ads whatsoever. And honestly, I would say just never, ever, ever click on an ad. If you like what they're showing you and you want to buy it or whatever, don't click on the ad to get there. Again, do a little research, find out where that thing is and go there, quote unquote, manually to find that website. Do not click on the ad. All right, next up, this is one of a couple articles we have today from Bleeping Computer. And this is about the so-called no-fly list. It was leaked online and apparently contains 2 million people. Okay, so here's here's the article from Bleeping Computer. A secret terrorist watch list with 1.9 million records, including sensitive no-fly records, was exposed on the Internet. The list was left accessible on an Elasticsearch cluster that had no password on it. And Elasticsearch is just a type of database. In July this year, security discovery researcher Bob Diachenko came across a plethora of JSON records in an exposed Elasticsearch cluster that piqued his interest. And JSON is JavaScript object notation. It's just a data format. The 1.9 million strong record set contained sensitive information on people, including their names, country citizenship, gender, date of birth, passport details, and no-fly status. The exposed server was indexed by search engine Census and ZoomEye, which I've never heard of either, indicating Diachenko may not have been the only person to come across the list. The researcher told Bleeping Computer that given that the nature of the exposed fields, including passport and no-fly indicator, it appeared to be a no-fly or similar terrorist watch list. Additionally, the researcher noticed that some elusive fields such as tag, nomination type, and selectee indicator that weren't immediately understood by him. And this is a quote from uh, from this researcher, Diachenko. quote, that was the only valid guess given the nature of data. Plus, there was a specific field named TSC underscore ID, unquote, which hinted to him that the source of the record set could be the terrorist screening center or TSC. FBI's TSE is used by multiple federal agencies to manage and share consolidated information for counterterrorism purposes. The agency maintains a watch list called the Terrorist Screening Database, sometimes referred to as the No Fly List. Such databases are regarded as highly sensitive in nature, considering the vital role they play in aiding national security and law enforcement tasks terrorists or reasonable suspects who pose a national security risk are quote-unquote nominated for placement on the secret watch list at the government's discretion. The list is referenced by airlines and multiple agencies, such as the Department of State, Department of Defense, Transportation Security Authority, or TSA, the Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, to check if a passenger is allowed to fly, inadmissible to the U.S., or assess their risk for various other activities." The researcher discovered the exposed database on July 19th, and this is another quote from that researcher, quote, I discovered the exposed data on the same day and reported it to the Department of Homeland Security. The exposed server was taken down about three weeks later on August 9th of 2021. It's not clear why it took so long, and I don't know for sure whether any unauthorized parties accessed it, unquote. The researcher considers this data leak to be serious, considering watch lists can list people who are suspected of an illicit activity, but not necessarily charged with any crime. And another quote from Diyachenko, quote, In the wrong hands, this list could be used to oppress, harass, or persecute people on the list and their families. It could cause any number of personal and professional problems for innocent people whose names are included in the list, unquote. Cases where people landed on the no-fly list for refusing to become an informant aren't unheard of. Diachenko believes the leak could therefore have negative repercussions for such people and suspects. And one last quote from uh, Diachenko is this quote, the TSC watch list is highly controversial. The ACLU, for example, has for many years fought against the use of a government secret no-fly list without due process, unquote. So it's not clear to me why, why we're just reading about this now given that this happened over a year and a half ago. So I'm, I'm really not sure why this is just hitting the headlines. But obviously, this is this is a serious problem. This is some highly sensitive data, uh, both from a national security perspective and from a privacy perspective. Now, I, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a national security expert. I'm not sure I could really give an, an educated opinion about the whole no-fly list thing. You know, maybe that'd be a good topic for a future interview. Uh, I mean, I do agree that there should be some sort of due process for any such list, uh, you know, but I'm not sure how transparent it should be, you know, given the national security implications. So, you know, once you start throwing national security at something it, things get kind of hairy, but nevertheless, this thing was just sitting out there with no password protection. And, and like this guy said, he was probably not the only one who found it. So they definitely need to figure out who's screwed up there. Even though I guess at this point, <laughs> you know, the horse has already left the barn. All right, moving on another one from bleeping computer. And this is about some PayPal accounts that were breached. In a large-scale credential stuffing attack, PayPal is sending out data breach notifications to thousands of users who had their accounts accessed through credential stuffing attacks that exposed some personal data. Credential stuffing attacks are where hackers attempt to access an account by trying out username and password pairs sourced from data leaks on various websites. This type of attack relies on an automated approach with bots running lists of credentials to stuff into login portals for various services. Credential stuffing targets users that employ the same password for multiple online accounts which is known as password recycling or password reuse. PayPal explains that the credential stuffing attack occurred between December 6th and December 8th of 2022. The company detected and mitigated it at the time, but also started an internal investigation to find out how the hackers obtained access to the accounts. By December 20th of 2022, PayPal concluded its concluded its investigation confirming that unauthorized third parties logged into the accounts with valid credentials. The electronics payment platform claims that this was not due to a breach of its systems and has no evidence that the user credentials were obtained directly from them. According to the data breach reporting from PayPal... 34,942 of its users have been impacted by the incident. During the two days, hackers had access to account holders' full names, dates of birth, postal addresses, social security numbers, and individual tax identification numbers. Transaction histories, connected credit card and debit card details, and PayPal invoicing data are also accessible on PayPal accounts. PayPal says it took timely action to limit the intruder's access to the platform and reset the passwords of accounts confirmed to have been breached. Also, the notification claims that the attackers have not attempted or did not manage to perform any transactions from the breached PayPal accounts. Impacted users will receive a free-of-charge, two-year identity monitoring service from Equifax. The company strongly recommends that recipients of the notices change the passwords for other online accounts using a unique and long string. Typically, a good password is at least 12 characters long and includes alphanumeric characters and symbols. Moreover, PayPal advises users to activate two-factor authentication protection from the account settings menu, which can prevent an unauthorized party from accessing an account even if they have a valid username and password. So not a whole lot to add to that. It's just another case, though, where reusing passwords has gotten people in trouble. Do not reuse passwords across multiple sites. That's what a password manager is for. Create long, strong, crazy, unique passwords for every single account And like we talked about last week, you can start using email aliases as well, because there's two parts to every login credential. There's a username and the password. While today's usernames are almost always the same as your email address, you can pretty easily now, and for almost no money in most cases, have multiple email aliases if you wish, which means that your usernames can now be unique for those sites as well. So it's not enough to have the password for that site. They also have to have your username. But yes, absolutely, two-factor authentication is also good for every website that you have that supports it. You should absolutely be using that. The headline of this said something about data breach. This really is not a data breach. PayPal was not breached. What happened is somebody hit PayPal specifically, probably because that's where a lot of people have money and you know juicy information like credit card numbers and social security numbers. People from some other data breach probably – were able to get a whole bunch of usernames and passwords for other accounts that were not PayPal accounts and figure that most people reuse passwords, so why not try them on PayPal and see if they work? And apparently it worked for thir- almost 35,000 people on PayPal. All right, next up, we got an article from Naked Security, which is the Sophos blog, and it's about T-Mobile losing data for 37 million customers. U.S. mobile provider T-Mobile has just admitted to getting hacked in a filing known as a 8K that was submitted to the Securities and Exchange Commission or the SEC yesterday, and that was on January 19th. T-Mobile's quote-unquote other event is described as follows. On January 5th of 2023, T-Mobile US identified that a bad actor was obtaining data through a single application programming interface, or API, without authorization. We promptly commenced an investigation with uh, external cybersecurity experts, and within a day of learning of the malicious activity, we were able to trace the source of the malicious activity and stop it. Our investigation is still ongoing, but the malicious activity appears to be fully contained at this time." In plain English, the crooks found a way in from the outside using simple web-based connections that allowed them to retrieve private customer information without needing a username or password. T-Mobile first states the sort of data it thinks attackers didn't get, which includes payment card details, social security numbers, tax numbers, other personal identifiers such as driver's licenses or government-issued IDs, passwords and pins, and financial information such as bank account details. That's the good news. The bad news is that the crooks apparently got in way back on uh, November 25th and didn't go away empty-handed. The attackers, it seems, had enough time to extract and make off with at least some personal data for about 37 million users, including both prepaid and postpaid customers, including name, billing address, email, phone number, date of birth, T-Mobile account number, and the information such as the number of lines on the account and plan features. Curiously, T-Mobile officially describes this state of affairs with the words, quote, "...there is currently no evidence that the bad actor was able to breach or compromise our systems or our network," unquote. Affected customers, and perhaps the relevant regulators, might not agree that 37 million stolen customer records, notably including where you live and your date of birth, can be waived aside as neither a breach nor a compromise." T-Mobile, as you may remember, paid out a whopping $500 million in 2022 to settle a breach that it suffered in 2021, although the data stolen in that incident did include information such as social security numbers and driver's license details. That sort of personal data generally gives cybercriminals a greater chance of pulling off serious identity thefts, such as taking out loans in your name or masquerading as you to sign up for some other sort of contract than if they only "quote unquote" had your contact details and your date of birth. All right, so the takeaway here, I guess, is if you're a T-Mobile subscriber, uh, you you should have already been notified about this, but, you know, be on the lookout for convincing phishing scams, you know, particularly ones that might directly mention your T-Mobile account information. And as I've said before, you know, be very careful when you get text messages or emails. Don't click on links and emails and text messages unless you specifically just requested such, you know, information, like you're trying to reset your password or something. And remember that when you're being fished like this, if you do happen to click on one of these links and you go to a website that's a fake website and your password manager, because you are using a password manager, right? Your password manager will not offer to fill in credentials for fake websites. It will not be fooled by typo squatted domains and lookalike websites. All right. Last article before we get to the Dear carry question and the tip of the week. And this is about Twitter God mode. And this is from nine to five Mac. Twitter God Mode, an internal tool that hackers used to tweet from high-profile accounts, including Apple back in 2020, remains available to all of the company's engineers, according to a new report today. Twitter had previously said that the security hole had been fixed, but a whistleblower said that aside from changing the name of the tool from God Mode to Privileged Mode, the company had made only one change, and that still allowed any Twitter engineer to trivially gain uncontrolled access to it. Apple's official Twitter account, Apple, was one of a number of high-profile accounts compromised back in 2020. Other accounts affected were Joe Biden, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Mike Bloomberg, Kanye West, Uber, Floyd Mayweather, the Cash App, Warren Buffett, Barack Obama, and Mr. Beast. I don't know who that is. Oh, and one more, Elon Musk. The hack was all the more notable because it was possible despite the fact that many of the accounts used two-factor authentication, meaning that access should have been impossible even with the account password. As it happened, the attackers simply posted a Bitcoin scam, but the ability to tweet absolutely anything from such high-profile and trusted accounts could have led to far more serious consequences. It later came to light that the hack was made with an internal tool, then known as God Mode. Those with access to God mode could post tweets from literally any account without the need for account specific authentication. God mode also allowed existing tweets to be deleted. Twitter said afterwards that it had investigated and taken steps to address the problem. However, according to the whistleblower, the only change was to withdraw default access to the tool. Any engineer who wanted access to it only had to change the flag in one line of code from false to true. The Washington Post reports that a whistleblower reported this to Congress back in October, and it has now been shared with the paper by a congressional staffer. The whistleblower said that not only can any engineer make this change themselves, but that Twitter security staff has no way to know who has done it. The report backs claims by former Twitter security head Peter Zatko that the company had, quote, extreme egregious deficiencies, unquote, in its protections against hackers. So I'm not, I'm not sure what to add to that. As a software engineer, I do know that, you know, it's not uncommon to have special tools, administrative tools that are available to the engineering staff that allow them to do special things. But those days should be gone. We should we should not be doing that kind of stuff anymore for these exact reasons. When I was at Cisco before I left, I had access to similar tools for Webex and some of the other things that we did at Cisco, but in order to get access to those tools, I did have to jump through a whole bunch of hoops and there was a lot of paper trail involved. Like there was no way that I could have done anything without it being traced back to me. That's the way it should be done. I cannot believe, especially after they got caught doing this, that their quote unquote fix was just to flip a bit and make it not available to all engineers by default and make it such that all an engineer had to do is flip the bit back to get access Honestly, I think, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but (laughs) it seems like there's a potential for lawsuits in there somewhere. All right, so that's the news of the week. And now let's get to the Dear carry question. I actually had two different questions that I think are the same question. So I'm just going to read them both here and, and then cover them together. The first one is from Jack. And Jack asked, is Plaid as much of a security nightmare as it has always seemed it must be? And then from H187 in Connecticut. And this one's a little bit hard to read, but it's, it's written kind of like, like instructions, like you're clicking on links and they, they go in order. Like the first one is digital banking, then link an external account, and then sign into your account, provide ID and password. And a, a quote, I guess, from this bank is, we use a data access provider to securely make a connection with your bank name. And the question that H187 asks is, is this safe or wise? Who is this anonymous data access provider? And if you listen to the first question, the name was listed right there, and that is Plaid, P-L-A-I-D. My guess is that that is who this uh, external data access provider is. And so what is Plaid? I've talked about this a little bit on the show before, but let's let's recap. So there's this whole industry of companies called financial technology or fintech. And where you might know them is with, like, if you've got an investment account or if you have a mint.com account or a, a Quicken account, uh, there's a lot of them that do this now. These are financial aggregators where, you know, for the purposes of investments, I you know, your, your broker or your, whoever's handling your money, you know, wants to know all your balances and all your various accounts, even the ones that they don't control, so they can kind of help you plan your taxes and your investments and, you know, how you might be shuffling money around or should you pay credit cards instead of paying off loans and all these kind of things. So, you know, financial advisors generally need access to the full picture if they're going to give you good advice. And if they are listed as a fiduciary, and they not all of them are, and I'm not sure how this works outside the U.S., but in the U.S., if you're listed as a fiduciary, then they are only supposed to use that information for your benefit. And they're not all listed as fiduciary. So you, if you have a financial advisor, you should ask them if they are. But in the old days, when you wanted to do this, if you wanted to kind of aggregate this information, like again, like in a quicken or a mint.com thing where you want to be able to see all of your accounts in one website, you had to give them somehow access to these other accounts. And in the old days, there was, there are kind of other ways you could do that. And I'm going to talk about those in a minute because there's, there's still somewhat available today, not, not as much, but because it was clunky and hard to do, you know, this company called Plaid came along and they developed this technique where you give Plaid or this, this anonymous provider or whatever, you basically say, you know, give me the login credentials for your bank account, which most people, certainly everybody listening to this podcast should immediately be like, uh, I don't know if I want to do that. And that's probably the, where these questions are coming from. And I completely understand but behind the scenes what's going on is is this this broker this this plaid company or and there's probably others like plaid but plaid I think is by far the most popular one they have a mechanism by which they can behind the scenes with that information on a one time basis get like a token like an authentication token from from your bank and it gives them special access to a limited amount of information from your accounts. You know, like account numbers, account names, account balances, and uh, maybe a little bit of personal information and like transaction data. And in some cases, you can actually determine what information you are willing to share. As you're going through this process, sometimes they will they will give you the opportunity, like you're asking... You know, mint.com, let's say you're authorizing mint.com to have access to Wells Fargo or Bank of America or whatever your account. And these are the accounts you want them to access, like, sure, I want them to see my checking and savings, but I don't want them to see my 529 account or my business account or something like that. You can choose what accounts, and in some cases, you can actually choose what types of information they're allowed access to, which is great. That's the way it should be. It's like a permissions thing with an app. What kind of permissions do you want to give this app? What kind of permissions do you want to give this connection? What do you want them to be able to see? And then behind the scenes, they do this again. It's, it's this kind of secure handshaking protocol where they make a connection to that other thing. And it's usually a revocable permission, kinda, again, like an app permission. And I, I'm not sure. You could probably do it from multiple locations. You could certainly from within Mint.com, you could turn that off. You could probably, if you knew where to look, go to your bank. Uh, and find, you know, these are the authorized connections that I have allowed. And and so if you go to Wells Fargo, for example, and you've made this connection, if you knew where to look, there's probably somewhere you could find, it might even say plaid, but it might say mint.com or, you know, ameriprise.com or hnrblock.com or whoever your, you know, whoever your investment advisor is, TD Ameritrade, whatever. Uh, and you might be able to revoke it from that end as well. Okay, so that that's the mechanics of it. That that's what it is and that's kind of how it works. The real question that's being asked here is is this safe? Now, <laughs> the, the real the answer is probably from everything I've read and I have done some reading and there's some links uh, in the show notes you could check out if you want some further information. From everything I've seen so far, you know, the the protocol, the 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 way they exchange this information the way that they set up these account connections is secure because it is kind of limited. Like, for instance, just because they have this connection, Mint.com should not be able to, you know, make transactions on your behalf if it's set up properly. And I don't know that in every case it's the same, but the way this should work is it should be kind of like read only access to the the most basic information. And I believe, and this is. I'm not 100% sure on this, but I believe the way it works is the the whole username and password thing is a one-time thing. Like they don't retain access to your account. They use your username and password just long enough to link these accounts together to set up this data sharing arrangement. And then after that, they are no longer kept. They, They Instead, they use it to get this authentication token, which they keep around. And then that token is only usable for this limited set of information. Now, obviously, if if there was a mistake in any of this process or if plaid was hacked you know then there could be more danger my guess given what i just said is that if plaid were somehow hacked and bad guys were in the plaid network you know maybe they would only be able to access accounts you know with full username and password access to your account for those that are currently undergoing this connection setup if Plaid has done it correctly, they are not maintaining those credentials anywhere. And otherwise, they would only be able to get access to these tokens that would only perhaps give them perhaps give them access to that limited information. Though, again, if they were doing it right, Plaid really even shouldn't have that anymore either. Like that token really should be handed over to mint.com or whoever, and they should no longer have it. But these are a lot of ifs. <laughs> this is you know, a lot of if they're doing it right. That is the way it should work. Now, there's just no beating the convenience of these things. I use things like this. My, my financial advisor has asked for this sort of access so that I can have a single dashboard that shows me all of my accounts, where all my money is, calculates my net worth, helps me figure out where I might want to shift money to and how I'm spending money, blah, blah, blah. That is extremely convenient. It's really important, you know, when I'm doing my financial planning to have access to that information in one spot and for them, you know, my financial advisor to have access to that as well. I am using this now. And so, if that means anything to you, I have decided that it's that the convenience is worth the risk. There are other ways and there are other situations besides financial advisors where you might set up these kind of links and you don't necessarily have to use Plaid. Sometimes they will give you the old school options. And if you remember the old school options, there's usually two other ways to do it. One is you can give them a debit card. And that I would actually worry about more because if you're giving them, you know, if you're connecting through a debit card, if it asks for your debit card information and they say that, then, you know, anybody who has that information could drain your account. That that to me is scary. The other thing you could sometimes do is you give them a routing number and the account number. And then if you remember, if you're old enough to remember the way this used to work, because they would do these micro deposits. So you would give them this information, they would make you know, two deposits in your account, like 20 cents and 35 cents, or, you know, seven cents and 12 cents, you know, some, something less than a dollar, something more than, than zero. And then you would go back and say, here's what you deposited. And, th- and once they verify those two numbers to the same, they'd say, yes, this is working. We have verified that this has worked. We now have access to your account enough to, to do what we got to do. But because that it was so clunky, and because that usually took several days, nobody wants to do that anymore. I actually think in that case, that is probably safer because I don't, I don't know, I, don't, I better not say, uh, I, but I don't think that just having an account number and routing number is sufficient to take money from somebody's account. I could I could be wrong. So anyway, hopefully to answer both of those questions, uh, two birds with one stone, the company that's behind a lot of these things, at least in the United States, and I think it's international as well, is a company called Plaid. And if you do some searching, like is Plaid safe or is Plaid secure, you will find several articles on this. And I've got at least one or two in the show notes you can check out. So I want to give a shout out here to one of the sites that I used to reference this. And then along the way, I want to shout out a few other sites that I love as resources. And I maintain a resources page on my website. If you go to FirewallsDon'tStopDragons.com and look at resources, you can find all of these there. But these are great sites. I, I like them myself. I should not be the single source of information for you on these things. So if you're looking for other great sites with privacy and security information, check out All Things Secured. Uh, Josh has a great, great site and some really good videos. If you you prefer videos, he's got some good stuff. Techlore also has great content. Henry's been on the show before. I've been on his show before. We will need to do that again. Uh, The new oil is also another great site. That's Nate's site. Uh, He's been on the show. We came on to talk about cryptocurrency and privacy guides. Another great site with a lot of good information. So these are some of my all time favorite sites. I know the guys that run these sites. They're, they're, They're great people and it's good information. So put those on your bookmark list and check them out. They've got great info. Okay, now it's time for the tip of the week. And I've been wanting to get to this for well over a month now. And let's talk about Apple's new advanced data protection. So as you may recall, I have been beating up Apple for not having full user controlled end to end encryption on their iCloud data storage. This is something that has been bugging you for a long time. It's something that you know, for any company that claims that they care about privacy and privacy is a human right. And what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. They've got all this marketing around privacy. And yet they held the keys to all the data that you stored in the the cloud. And that is just incompatible to me. (laughs) You can't have one without the other. You at least have to give people the option of controlling their own destiny of having the the keys to the encryption themselves such that even apple with a court order or every bit of technology they can throw at it cannot access your data if you have this enabled and finally out of nowhere they released this feature or announced this feature in december and it is now available and active to all apple users with some caveats so first caveat is they're not encrypting everything, but they're encrypting almost everything. Like now all your iCloud backups and your iCloud messages, your iCloud drive, all of these things, if you enable this feature, can be encrypted with end-to-end encryption uh, with a key that only you can access and so that only you can get to this data. I think the only things that are really not encrypted at this point are any email stuff like iCloud.com emails are not encrypted. You're Apple calendar stuff, anything you're even syncing with your Apple calendar, like if you're, you know, syncing other Google calendars through your Apple calendar app and your contacts. While it would be really nice if those things were encrypted in practical sense, it's hard to do. Like, if, for example, with email, if, if you've got Proton Mail uh, or a super encrypted email and, and you send an email to somebody on Gmail, then, you know, Google still has that information. You know, there are ways to do it such that that's not true, but you have to jump through some hoops, but email and calendar and contacts in particular, these things are all often synced up. You know, people often have multiple emails. They have multiple calendars. uh, They want to synchronize contacts. And because of the way a lot of those things work, they, they're really built more transparently than securely. And because they tend to interact with a lot of other services, they're really hard to lock down. It would break a lot of things. So maybe someday they'll come up with a solution for that, but currently those things are not encrypted. But here's the other real caveat, and honestly, this is what has kept me so far from being able to enable this for myself, and I've tried, uh, is for this to work, all, every single one of your Apple devices must be updated to the absolute latest software. And I don't mean the latest software available for that device, I mean the latest software, period. So if you happen to have an old iPhone, like let's say you're still holding on to, oh gosh, I don't know iPhone 10, something that cannot get the latest version of iOS, then you cannot enable advanced data protection because in order for this to work, all of your devices have to be able to support this feature. And to support this feature, you have to have modern devices. So if you, like me, have a lot of Apple devices, you may find that this trips you up. Now, if if you've got a device that can still be updated to the latest and greatest software that Apple's making, great. You'll just have to do that on all your devices and you should be okay. But I have so many, so many Apple devices uh, that it's gonna take me a while to get them all updated. And you might think, well, this is Carrie. Why doesn't Carrie have all his Apple's devices updated? Well, okay, so my daughter is borrowing one of my laptops for college. And I left one of my accounts active on there so I could do administrative stuff on that stuff. And I don't think she's kept her laptop up to date. So I'm going to have to make sure that she updates that laptop so that the account that I have on there will be up to date. And then that one device will no longer be stopping from from doing this. A couple of my Apple TV devices apparently haven't updated yet. They will automatically at some point. Uh, so I'll make sure that that happens. And then for the book, when I was working on the book, I had to have one device running Monterey so that I could get screenshots for Monterey and I haven't updated that device yet on purpose because I needed to have something to run the old version of the software so I could get screenshots for that. So that's a personal thing. But know that you will have to make sure that all of your Apple devices are completely up to date for you to be able to enable this feature. The other weird thing about that is if you just got like a new iPhone, for example, if you've only had that for a few weeks, there is some sort of minimum period for which you need to own that device before you can turn this on. I think this is to prevent somebody from like doing a simjacking kind of thing where they get an iPhone in your name so that they can access your stuff. So I think, I think my guess is that it's trying to prevent some sort of maneuver like that. So, if you just bought an iPad or just bought a a laptop or whatever, or just bought an iPhone, you may run into this when you go to try to turn on. It may say something like, you know, try back again on this date. I think it actually gives you the date uh, because there's a certain waiting period before you can turn this this feature on. So realize that what this means is and this is why apple has waited one of the reasons apple has waited so long to do this is this is a definite trade-off between convenience and security and they've tried to thread this needle as best they can but what this means is if you turn this on apple can no longer get your data back if you forget your iCloud password or lose your iphone which is your device that you use to unlock your your accounts your data's gone i mean apple cannot get it back for you now, don't let that scare you too much because Apple's really gone to great lengths to make sure that you can get your data back if you need to. And so a couple things they've they've done. You, you can generate a recovery key. Actually, I think you can do more than one. You can generate these recovery keys and print them out, put them somewhere safe. And worst case, if you lose your device that you need to authenticate with, which is most likely your iPhone, but I think it I think it could also be a computer. If you lose your device that you need to authenticate with that has the these secret keys stored within it, then you can use a recovery key to get your data back. The other thing you can do is you could create a recovery contact. So you could designate somebody else with an iPhone, and that iPhone probably has to be up to date as well. But you can designate someone else you know, like let's say your spouse or maybe one of your parents or something like that. You can designate them as your emergency contact. You could probably have more than one. That will not give them access to your stuff. Actually, the quote from Apple is your recovery contacts won't have any access to your account, only the ability to give you a code if you need one. And by the way, there's links in the show notes to as uh, one or two Apple articles about all of this stuff. So what that basically means is you're saying, okay, I trust this person such that if, if, if I lose my phone or it's stolen and now I can't get access to my account, I can request my recovery contact to give me a code that will allow me to access my data. So that sounds complicated, and that's because it is. And that's probably one reason it took them so long to do this. This is not easy to set up, especially with with you know so many Apple devices all sharing data. They've they've got to make this work for everything, but they've done it. And it's I recommend that you absolutely turn this on as soon as you can, as soon as you can make it work. And I will be doing it as soon as I can get all my devices updated. Apple had a couple other interesting security features I'm not going to talk about now, but they actually support hardware keys now, like YubiKeys, for, for access to your account if you want to enable that. They've got some other interesting features for uh, making sure that the people you're talking to on iMessage are really the people you're talking to. Like if they get a new device, you'll, you should get prompted that, you know, hey, this person has a new device. Do you want to trust it? That kind of thing. Uh, these are all great features, and they're all se- uh, security features and privacy features that uh, have been a long time coming, and I'm very happy to see them. All right, everybody, there's your news, your Derek Carey question, and your tip of the week. All right, that's going to do it for today. Got a few more things before we go. I promised you a book update, and here that is. By the time you hear this, or at worst by Tuesday, my book should be out. Knock on wood. Uh, I have been promised that the book will be available by the end of January, which is Tuesday. So what that should mean is pre-orders should become orders, and you should be able to directly order the book from Amazon or wherever. The ebook should be immediately available for download from Amazon, and probably from A Press, my publisher, and probably Barnes & Noble and other places like that as well. If you want information, you can go to fdsd.me book, and you'll find some other interesting things there if you want to buy the book. First of all, I've got a, a link in on that page to what I'm calling a book updates page. So if you buy the book, I will have so several interesting resources for you there first of all if you have a paper book this book has got a lot of links in it and if you got the paper book you can't cl- you can't click on the paper with your finger and, and go to the website right if you got an ebook of course it's easy but if you don't if you've got the paper version and uh, there's so many links in the book if you want to follow those links i will have a list of all the links in the book in order by chapter uh, on this book updates page i will also Do my best to keep those links up to date because links invariably change over time. They either go stale, uh, they, they move, or in some cases they just go dead. They no longer work. So I will try to keep all of that up to date on this book updates page. I also maintain a list of errata, basically errors. If I find something that's wrong in the book, I will note that on these pages as well and any other major updates. Luckily, I was able to get in the change from LastPass to Bitwarden before it got published. So that did make it into the book. But as you know, products come and go, my recommendations will change over time. So I would definitely if I have the book before I implemented anything, go to the website, find the updates page, make sure that the information there is still up to date and correct, especially, you know, six, 12 months down the line. And finally, uh, I haven't done this yet, but I will be doing it soon. I plan on making a free downloadable PDF kind of a workbook to go with the, the book, and I'll probably include the links in there as well, all the, all the links of the book uh, in a PDF file. But I'll probably also give you a nice list of all the tips in the book with maybe little check boxes, and you know, maybe some, some areas for you to write notes and things like that. I'm going to try to come up basically with a workbook that will help you get through the book eventually I really actually I'm hoping to kind of do like a book club kind of thing where I can actually give you a sort of a packet that you can maybe you and your friends can get together read the book together and work through stuff together that's that's a stretch goal I'm not sure when I'll get to that but initially at least I'm going to have a list of all the links in a pdf document and a list of all the tips with check boxes so you have a nice little record of, of the things that you have yet to do and the things you have done if you happen to have an older copy of the book I've got book links and errata for all of those as well so you're also covered but if you go to firewalls, dragons.com slash book dash updates, uh, you'll find that page. Or if you just go to the fdsd.me slash book page, there's a link there that will take you to this page. Okay, so if you would like to help me in my endeavors, if you would like to help me reach more people, and you're thinking about buying the book, the time to do that is now. Like, <laughs> when the book is released, when the book is launched, that's probably when there's going to be like the biggest, you know, single push of people buying books. That is surge helps to push the book into top 10 lists on amazon which gets it a lot more notice which gets more book sales and it's a virtuous cycle so if you would like to help me if you were ever thinking about buying the book now is a great time to do it Uh, i don't know if amazon is still going to have their crazy discount it was like over 50 percent off at some point uh if that's still going to survive once the book launches but you check that out and look for good deals on amazon but if you'd like to help me reach more people and get the book noticed you know buying it sooner rather than later would be good and then the other really big thing that is super, super helpful and so hard to get is reviews. If you like the book, please, please consider giving it a nice five-star review on Amazon. And even better yet, you know, just one or two sentences about what you like about the book, something specific you like about the book that just goes a long way. And the more reviews, uh, the better. Funny enough, I was looking, I actually, in the pre-orders, I cracked the top 10 in one of the categories. I think it was privacy and online safety. I cracked the top 10 of that while it was in pre-order stage and I went to look and see what my competition was and what other books were in the top 10. And I think literally four of the top 10 books were password books. Like one of them was WTF is my password. The other funny thing was a lot of them had swear words in the titles. Like not only do people like password books, they like password books that swear at them. I I just thought that was funny. Now I I will say there is nothing wrong Absolutely nothing wrong with writing down your passwords, especially some of these ones that are hard to remember. That's okay to do that. Uh, the threat model of somebody getting at that password is pretty limited. It's people that are, have access to your house, you know, which might be a maid or you know service people or something like that. So, you know, don't keep it anywhere obvious. And I hate to say it, but don't keep them in a book that's labeled passwords. Get yourself some other book that doesn't say passwords on the outside and keep it somewhere where it's not obvious. So something else you could do that would really help, uh, especially if you've got any kind of a following on social media, is to post about this there. If you tag me, uh, I will at least like your tag and then probably uh, repost it as well. You could find all my social media contacts at firewallsdonestopdragons.com slash contacts or fdsd.me contact. And then if you happen to know like a true influencer or someone who's got a podcast or someone who's got other some sort of sizable audience that might be interested in this, obviously, if you can you know, reach out to them and say, hey, you should consider promoting this, that could be really huge. Some of the things you could do if you're interested, you could stop by your local library or independent bookshop and ask them to carry my book. If they happen to be near me, which is the Raleigh, North Carolina area, I would be happy to do a book signing or maybe give a little seminar with the book signing. I've already gotten some really great endorsements for the book that are listed on Amazon. I plan on adding more, including like from Andy Yen, the CEO of Proton, Raphael, the CEO of Safing, Andrea Mico, the CEO of Privacy for Cars. I've gotten a lot of great endorsements already, which is which hopefully will also help some book sales. Honestly, the hardest part at this point is getting noticed. It's really, really hard. There are so many books out there, even in this space, they're just There's a lot of other books, so it's really hard to get noticed. So anything that you could do to help would be very, very much appreciated. All right, so we've got some great interviews coming up. I just interviewed Johnny Ryan, great guy. He's from the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Uh, I will be interviewing Susie Dawson very soon. She is the CEO and founder of Panquake. I'll tell you all about that when we interview her. I'm going to be talking to somebody from Bitwarden, and I've got a lot of other great interviews in the pipeline. So if you have not already, subscribe to the podcast, and you won't miss any of that last call for the survey if you're going to do that you need to do it this week that's fdsd.me survey 2023 again links to all of the stuff in the show notes all right everybody take care out there happy data privacy week yeah i know it was last week but <laughs> we're covering it this week we're, we're observing it we're observing it this week happy data privacy week take care out there stay safe and until next week as always don't get caught with your drawbridge down